Good evening. I'm, I must begin uh, by expressing my appreciation to Wilbur Johnson. Uh, he exemplifies uh, the very best qualities of citizens around uh, the country who serve the Federal Reserve System uh, by participating in our governance structure on our boards of directors and by regularly bringing us reports on economic conditions in their uh, neck of the woods. Uh, and my appreciation as well for our many other directors uh, of the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond, both our Richmond and our Charlotte boards who are here tonight. Uh, we very much appreciate their service and, and Wilbur has, has just been exemplary. <clears throat> it's been a tremendous pleasure uh, to be here again in Charleston, South Carolina. Twice a year, we, the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond, find it uh, valuable to uh, uh, select an important region in our district, and our district extends from Maryland down to South Carolina and includes almost all of West Virginia, and spend some time getting to know what's going on economically uh, in that area. The type of granular, on-the-ground economic intelligence uh, that we can glean on such trips has proven to us absolutely critical uh, for our understanding of the process of uh, economic growth and innovation as it evolves in real time. And that, in turn, has been vital to uh, sound economic policy making, uh, particularly monetary policy. So for the last two days, my colleagues and I have been uh, meeting with people around the Charleston area. Many of you are the, among those who uh, we've met. Uh, and we've been able to get a taste of uh, the very impressive economic energy uh, in this region. We've learned, among other things, about the burgeoning tech sector, uh, the aerospace cluster, uh, and advanced research in the renewable energy space. It's been an, an enlightening and very beneficial visit. Of course, the lovely historical architecture and the excellent low country cuisine haven't heard our visit either. So I'm very delighted about that. So the key to this dynamism is human capital. And this is a phrase that economists use to refer to the knowledge and skills that make people more economically productive. Investment in human capital ensures that we have a skilled workforce capable of developing and implementing new technologies and workers that are able to reap the benefits of economic growth as it occurs. Now I know that civic leaders here in Charleston, like civic leaders elsewhere in our district and around the country, are acutely aware that workforce quality is a critical factor when companies are choosing where to locate a new, a new facility, manufacturing or otherwise. A skilled workforce is thus essential to a region's economic vitality, and I'd assert it's essential to our nation's economic vitality as well. The fact that we've learned so much from around our district and heard so often about workforce skills and their importance to local economic development has motivated us at the Richmond Fed to review what the economics literature has to say about how to go about enhancing those skills. And this evening, what I'd like to do is to talk about the results of that review, specifically about several key elements uh, that ought to be part of any comprehensive research-based approach to improving human capital investment. I'll be talking about providing students with a better understanding of college preparedness, about informing them about multiple career and post-secondary uh, education options, and about laying the foundations for success with early childhood education. 
Before I discuss these details in, in, um, in, in these ideas in more detail, I have to say two things. One is uh, that uh, the views expressed are my own and not necessarily those of anyone else in the Federal Reserve System. The usual disclaimer we refer to this. Uh, and then the other thing is that if you're coming here expecting an economic outlook talk, I apologize for the bait and switch. Uh, but your consolation is that if you can think of a, a crafty question, uh, then you can spring it on me during the Q&A later, later this evening. So to begin, <clears throat> think back 25 years ago. Nearly 25% of South Carolina's workers were employed in manufacturing, many of them in textile mills that had moved south from New England during the 1950s to take advantage of cheaper labor. In the 1990s, those mills moved overseas in search of even cheaper labor, and manufacturing in this state de declined precipitously. Today, fewer than 12% of South Carolinians work in manufacturing. Recently, however, this state has experienced a resurgence of more advanced manufacturing, and the value of goods uh, the value of manufactured goods produced in the state has increased even as manufacturing employment has declined. The factories producing airplane components and ballistic-resistant cars don't look much like the factories of old. In fact, you might have heard the old adage that uh, the factory of the future is going to have two employees, a man and a dog. The man will be there to feed the dog, and the dog will be there to keep the man from touching the equipment. <laughs> Now, that might be a bit of exaggeration in this day and age, but it's, it's very true that today's factories employ far fewer people than they used to. And those people have to have very specialized training to operate complex computer-controlled machinery. Now, when new technologies increase the demand for more skilled workers who can operate those technologies, economists refer to it as skill-biased technical change that the technology, and there's no guarantee that technolo technological evolution has this property, that the, the evolution of technology is biased towards increasing the demand for skilled workers. It hasn't always been true, but it, it seems to be very true in the last 40 or 50 years. Because it takes time for people to learn new skills, this increase in the demand for skilled workers initially leads to higher wages for skilled workers relative to the wages of unskilled workers. But those higher wages will induce more people to obtain the necessary training and education. And as that happens, as the supply of skilled workers tends to respond to demand, those wage differentials tend to narrow. Economists Claudia Golden and Lawrence Katz have documented this dynamic throughout the 20th century in the United States, and they call it the race between education and technology. In the early 1900s, for example, new technologies such as typewriters and adding machines created a new class of white-collar clerical jobs that required a high school education. Because few such people had such degrees then, the, these jobs paid about twice as much as jobs that did not require a high school degree. The response was a dramatic increase in high school graduation rates. Between 1910 and 1940, the number of 19-year-olds in the U.S. with a diploma increased from 9% to 51%. Over that same period, the wage premium associated with high school completion collapsed. Supply responded to price, relative prices, and relative prices uh, collapsed. 
In the latter half of the 20th century, the computer revolution take hold, took hold. The demand for college-educated workers began to rise, and hence their relative wages rose as well. As one would expect, there's been an increase in the number of people with a college degree. In 2014, about 32% of adults over the age of 25 had at least a bachelor's degree. In 1980, that number was only 17%. 17% to 32%. And yet the college premium has continued to increase. In 1980, the average worker with a college degree or higher earned about 40% more than the average worker with only a high school diploma. In 2014, the college-educated worker earned about 80% more. The inescapable of conclusion is that we, meaning our educational systems, are failing to keep pace with our economy's growing demand for skilled workers. We should be concerned about this for two reasons, at least two reasons, I'll name two. First, it has implications for the long-run growth in standards of living. There's a consensus among economists that such growth occurs not only because we have more people working or more machines, in economic terms, more labor or more capital, but also because technological advances make existing workers more productive. Such advances might be entirely new types of machines, such as the steam engine or the transistor, or they might be new techniques for making existing products with the existing capital stock. In the 1980s, for example, the steel industry was transformed by the introduction of mini mills, which used scrap instead of iron ore and dramatically increased, dramatically lowered the time and cost needed to produce steel. So how and why do such advances occur? There are a variety of economic forces and incentives at work, but a large body of research suggests that human capital is a critical factor in that technological advance. Countries with more initial human capital appear to have a greater capacity to develop new technologies to copy or, and to a copy or adopt technologies from other countries. Skilled workers thus seem essential, not only to operate the new technologies, but also to help develop new technologies in the first place. The second reason for concern about this race that we seem to be losing is the shortfall in the supply of skilled workers. It affects the distribution of income. Recent data on economic inequality and economic mobility show that inequality has increased in recent years, as you'd expect from the widening of the college wage premium, while mobility has decreased or remained flat. In other words, the rich are likely to remain rich and the poor are likely to remain poor. Now, a lot of factors contribute to inequality and to the persistence of inequality across generations and within generations, but a growing disparity in skill acquisition, often in the form of college education, appears to play a very significant role. Research is clear on that. Now, rising inequality is not the only clue that we're not adequately preparing the next generation of workers. Nationwide, about 20% of high school students fail to graduate within four years, and there are significant disparities in graduation rates between white students and black or Hispanic students, and between students from high-income and low-income families. In some large urban school districts, as many as 40% of students do not graduate within four years. A growing share of those who do complete high school go on, do not go on to college. 
I'm sorry, do go on to college. Um, but far too many of these students fail to complete college. That's the point. Nationally, the college dropout rate is about 40%. The benefits from attending college for just a few semesters without graduating are relatively small. The unemployment rate for workers with some college education but no degree is comparable to the rate for workers with just a high school degree. And while students who have attended some college do earn on average a little more than high school graduates, about 15% more, this pales in comparison to the average earnings of those who've completed a bachelor's degree. As I said, that's about 80% higher. There's also substantial anecdotal evidence that we've uncovered that employers are having difficulty finding workers with the right skills. There's a common, this is a common refrain on our visits uh, to communities throughout the region, and it's also supported by uh, employer surveys. For example, in one recent study, 75% of manufacturers reported a moderate to severe shortage of skilled workers such as welders who have to have uh, strong math skills in order uh, to be able to read blueprints. The key question is, what can we do to increase the supply of skilled workers? A critical question for our country, I think. The large increase in the college premium has led many policymakers and educators to advocate college for all. But the, as the high school dropout rate indicates, there's a big difference between enrolling in college and graduating. During focus group meetings held in, um, recently in Virginia by the Richmond Fed, representatives from four-year colleges and community colleges shared that many students are surprised to discover that they lack the basic math skills necessary for college-level work. They find it frustrating. The educators find it frustrating as well. If students overestimate their readiness for college, they may be more likely to enroll in college but then drop out after they get there. This can be a costly lesson to learn. The average debt burden among college dropouts who took out loans is more than $14,000. The high school dropout rate suggests that many students could benefit from more information about what is required for college success. Of course, it's not enough to simply prescribe uh, what students need to know. We also have to help them learn it. Uh, this points to the value of improving the effectiveness of K through 12 education, uh, part of our education system. Now, that's a subject that involves a, a host of thorny issues, and it's, it's really beyond the scope of uh, the time I have here to address. But I'll say that I applaud the efforts uh, that are going on here in South Carolina and across the country to try and increase student achievement and to close the gaps of uh, students of different backgrounds. I was lucky enough to hear yesterday um, about some of those efforts at, uh, from the principal of Wando High School. Uh, and I commend efforts like that around our country. So I've also come to believe that we should supplement information about college preparedness with information about other career and post-secondary education options. Community colleges, for example, are a venue where students can learn more about the interests and aptitudes uh, of themselves and, and to hone the skills they have that are required for success at a four-year school. Moreover, there are a range of other post-high school educational institutions that can help students acquire the skills they need to succeed without a college degree. One factor in the high school dropout rate maybe the increasing focus of many high schools on college preparedness. Some students, 
may not wish to attend college, though, and may see large barriers to do so, doing so. If those students believe that the only reason to complete high school is to attend college, they might not see much value in doing what's required to graduate high school in the first place. Learning about alternative career and educational opportunities that might also require a high school degree could increase the perceived value of high school completion, and it could improve their labor market outcomes uh, relative to dropping out of high school. On the other hand, I think we can do more to ensure that well-qualified students do not forego college because of perceived obstacles, such as cost, or because of some social norms that cause them to underestimate the potential benefits or their likelihoods of success. Researchers that have, pro have found that by providing such students with targeted information and assistance, a, a fairly low-cost intervention, this can increase their matriculation rates and can play an important role in changing the beliefs of students who might erroneously think that they're not college material. So, so far I've discussed ways to increase cognitive skills, which are the specific things we learn uh, through formal education and on-the-job training. But non-cognitive skills, such as patience, work ethic, uh, following directions, these are also critical to success, as you know. These are skills that make it possible for us to acquire more complex cognitive skills, and they're also critical for success in the labor market. For example, during our focus group meetings, high school teachers and administrators shared that many students did not know how to self-direct or self-motivate, skills that are very important, obviously, for college success. Workforce development professionals we spoke with reported a lack of soft skills. It was a major obstacle to employment for their adult clients. And we also hear from employers that participate in our industry roundtables that many job applicants are just lacking in those skills. So how do you acquire these non-cognitive skills? So there's a cadre of economists and social science researchers led by the work of James Heckman, a Nobel laureate at the University of Chicago, have come to a consensus that a, a, the foundation is laid very early in life and that it can be difficult for children who fall behind to catch up. Skill gaps are evident as early as five years old and they tend to persist well into adulthood. The importance of early skill development also means that the return on a dollar invested in early childhood education is likely to be much higher than the return on a dollar invested later in their life. High quality early childhood education thus should be a crucial and it's, it's gonna be a cost effective element of a comprehensive strategy to improve human capital investment, even if the payoff is relatively far down the road. So let me sum up. Technological advances have changed the, the demand for skills in our economy. In recent decades, innovation has shifted demand towards more skilled workers, and these trends seem likely to continue. An increasingly better educated workforce thus is gonna be essential to long-term prosperity of either a region or of our nation as a whole. Our reading at the Richmond Fed of the research literature supports a balanced portfolio of human capital strategies that address the full range of educational stages and options. And this comprehensive approach would include the following elements, in addition, of course, to the very important project of enhancing the overall effectiveness of K through 12. First, informing middle school and high school students about what's required for success in college. Second, informing middle and high school students about multiple post-secondary education options. 
Third, provide, providing targeted information to well-qualified students who for various reasons may overestimate the cost or underestimate the benefits of a college education and investing in high quality early childhood education. I, I believe that these strategies can not only increase our nation's prosperity, uh, but they can provide our nation's citizens with the skills they need to share broadly in that prosperity. I thank you for attention, uh, your attention tonight, and I commend the efforts of those who were involved in this great project. Thank you. So I'm ready for some trick questions. Sure. Yes. Yes, next question. I'm sorry, what about interest rates? Where are they going? Well, it'll be hard for them to go much further down. <laughs> no, it's, it's, widely, uh, it's widely expected that the Federal Reserve is going to raise interest rates this year. Uh, we, we control a very short-term overnight interest rate, and we've been keeping, it's been, we've kept it at zero since the very end of 2008. Uh, we've provided additional monetary stimulus through so-called quantitative easing, purchasing assets, long-term assets to try and drive down, drive up prices, drive down the yields on those assets and stimulate economic borrowing and economic activity that way. So a variety of indicators point to the need to raise interest rates sometime this year. Um, I've uh, highlighted in, in remarks I've given recently uh, the fact that since June of last year, uh, consumer spending growth has picked up notably, and we've had uh, sort of the strongest streak of consumer spending growth uh, late last year that we've had in this entire expansion. That, seem, that growth seems predicated on reasonably good fa fundamentals. I'd point to the improvement in the labor market with the unemployment rate at 5.5%. A string, until the late, latest month's number, a string of very strong payroll employment numbers. And I'd also point to something that's a little less well publicized. Uh, we call it the flows data. So it's, these are measures of labor market turnover. How many people are hired any given month? How many people um, quit jobs any given month? How many postings are there? And those numbers have all strengthened notably over the course of the last year. Uh, the qu quits rate, for example, is a weird statistic. Uh, what fraction of the workforce quits each month, that's gone up, and that's a positive sign because it indicates that, you know, I mean, when you, when you quit and take a new job, it's a risk, and quitting is, is a gamble, and you're, likely, you're more likely to want to be willing to take that risk if you think that if the new job doesn't work out, you're going to be able to find a job on the job market. So this, that's an indicator that households really believe job market conditions have improved notably. So for those reasons, I think a strong case can be made that interest rates, short-term interest rates, ought to be higher right now. Now, the Federal Reserve has communicated that uh, it doesn't think it's likely to raise rates in April, at its April meeting, which is coming up in two weeks. Uh, so the June meeting, which is the next one after that, is the first time we could raise rates without undermining our past communications. So the question is, will a strong case remain in June? I think if the data come in reasonably co close to where a lot of economists are projecting over the next few months, um, I think the case is likely to remain strong. Now, having said all that about the strength last year, it's, it's worth noting that we've had some weak data in the last uh, month or two. 
Um, I think there's a, a good, a strong case can be made that a lot of that is transitory. Um, I think that the, you know, the rise in the dollar can't go on forever, and some of it's due to that. I think the, the weather clearly had an effect on the first quarter, and we'll see a rebound effect from that in the second quarter. Um, so I'm, I'm a bit undeterred by the, uh, more or less undeterred so far by the recent data. We'll see how it plays out. Um, I haven't made up my mind how I'm going to vote in June. I'll, I'll emphasize that. Um, I go into every meeting with um, a lot of analysis under my belt, a lot of thoughts, and, uh, but an open mind to listen to my colleagues. But that's the way I see the landscape right now. You're welcome. Other questions? I believe it has, um, but uh, the market, so the question is whether the market's built in an increase in rates, um, but um, the indicators are that there's some uncertainty in the market about just when we're going to raise rates. Um, some odds are placed on June, some on September, some on December, uh, some on uh, some other months as well. Um, and um, so, you know, when we do raise rates, it's unlikely to be a complete and total shock. Um, but it might be, the timing might be um, a little bit different than the market expects. Um, I don't expect um, unusual market volatility um, around a rate increase, but um, uh, it, it'll depend on how markets interpret the broad overall message we convey in um, our action at the time we take it. So, so Jeff, that sort of leads to the question of the Fed's communication strategy. Mm -hmm. and communication strategy? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the question was about communication strategy. Um, when we reduced rates to zero in late 2008, um, it was clear we were going to keep them low for some time, and we communicated that we thought we would keep them low for some time. Um, from essentially then, late 2008, until the last meeting, March, um, one of our policy tools, in a way, was this so-called forward guidance. And um, by, it, it, we, we could, by changing the horizon over which we communicated that it was likely for us to keep rates low, we could, in essence, move the rest of the yield curve and you know, tighten or, or, or loosen economic conditions. Well, uh, at the last meeting, our statement clearly signaled that forward guidance is over. We removed the word patient. It's not that we'll say nothing about the future, but we clearly signaled that starting in June, we were going to make decisions on a meeting-by-meeting -meeting basis. So I think the, you know, the days of us saying, um, you know, considerable period, or, um, you know, or, or, or signaling, you know, a, a time period or a trigger like a certain unemployment rate or inflation rate. I think those days are behind us, and we're likely to um, just signal that we're we're going to call things depending on how. The economic data come in. I think that's a, a good thing for us now. Yes, question over here. So, Mike. Yeah, mm -hmm. Moving away from interest rates, although that seems to be what everybody wants to talk about, you spent a couple of days in the region. I'd be curious to hear your assessment of what you see as our strengths and opportunities here, mm -hmm. given what you've observed. Yes, um, so it's been a fantastic two days. We've learned a ton. Um, we've um, uh, so we've talked a lot about we've talked about workforce yesterday at lunch. 
Um, we talked about infrastructure. Um, we uh, talked today about the aerospace cluster, um, and uh, we toured Boeing. Uh, yesterday, we toured the, the uh, Clemson Innovation Center um, and saw this really big gizmo uh, that uh, uh, tests, um, you know, tests uh, windmills. Um, and uh, uh, we've talked to a lot of people about what's going on. And, you know, our homework, I mean, the, the data shows that you guys are growing um, significantly more rapidly than the rest of our district. Uh, in fact, you're the hot, this is one of the hottest regions in our district, uh, which, is, which is news. I mean, you, you might find it surprising, but, you know, 10 years ago, Virginia and Maryland and the D.C. area were hotter. And those areas did much better during the recession than the Carolinas did. Carolinas were hit harder than uh, the north part, northern part of our district. Um, but you guys have come back more rapidly, and um, Virginia and D.C. have sagged as the cuts in federal spending have really, um, really taken a toll up there. So um, grow, population, labor force, employment growing significantly more rapidly than the country as a whole and our, our district. Um, it's, it's, you know, there's some clear drivers here, but it's, you know, it's broader than just aerospace. Um, there's clearly um, an energy, there's clearly a lot of people attracted to locating their businesses here. I mean, we talked to um, business leaders who, you know, have nothing to do with aerospace that, are, that came here because this is a good place to attract workers. It was because of the labor market here. And that's the striking theme that's emerged. So I think your challenge is to, to, to keep this a, a, an attractive place to pe for people to come and live. Um, in other areas in our district we've seen that have similar challenges, Asheville is, comes to mind. Um, housing costs are a delicate issue. I mean, you've got uh, an incredible architectural heritage and character you want to preserve, but at the same time, too many restrictions on increasing in de increases in density on the peninsula, you know, have the you know, have the um, potential uh, to raise housing costs more rapidly than they otherwise would and, and maybe choke off some of that inflow of, of good workers. So that's a clear challenge for you to sort of find the balance there. Um, everywhere you go, schools are a challenge and I urge you to focus, you know, as my speech suggests on, on workforce. I think uh, a, a, a big strength you have is, is the workforce training institutions and arrangements you have. Um, I think what Red ESC is doing, has done with Boeing is very impressive. Um, I think Trident Tech is very impressive as well. Um, so you guys are leaders, I see you guys as leaders within our district on that, and uh, that's the strength to build on as well. So I hope that's helpful. Laura? Thank you. We are red hot in many areas as you've touched upon, and one of the crises that we face is infrastructure. We've got to fix our roads and bridges if we are to attract continued economic development. So I'm curious to know, since it is one of our states and regional most pressing issues, what have you seen from other states that have addressed this successfully? And what is the economic impact of not addressing this? Because that is a real concern that we have. That's a good question. So I think, you know, as a nation, we're sort of in, um, in, in terms of the impact, you know, if you fail to address that and congestion grows, you know, we've, we've got the experience of Northern Virginia to look at. I mean, it's, it's definitely a detriment to Northern Virginia's economy. It definitely slows them down. It definitely discourages activity there, although, you know, Northern Virginia is a very vibrant economy. So it has the potential to slow you down. If you're perceived at a place as a place that has great amenities but has incredibly bad traffic, if that word gets around, it's not going to be good for you. 
Um, roads and bridges are public goods. This is what economists call goods that benefit a lot of people, and it's infeasible to charge people when you use them, pretty much. I mean, you can't charge for every road, you know, for, by user. So it's a question of how do you fund it? And uh, that's an essentially um, a political question, uh, and it's essentially you know, a negotiation within the political governance structures you have. Um, other regions, like Virginia, have solved it by figuring, all right, Northern Virginia will benefit a lot from infrastructure investments in Northern Virginia. Let's find a way to make Northern Virginia pay for it, not Abingdon or Roanoke. And same thing for Hampton Roads, and I think that's, that's the needle you gotta thread politically. And uh, you know, I, I, I try and stay out of politics, so I'll, I'll probably be it'd probably be best for me to leave it at that. So. Well, this has been excellent. I've truly, truly enjoyed uh, our visit. We've learned a ton, and I'm very grateful to all of those of you who've spent time with us over the last two days and helped us learn about your your fine city and an excellent region. Take care and be well. <laughs>